Welcome to Convos from the Couch by Life Stance Health, where leading mental health professionals help guide you on your journey to a healthier, more fulfilling life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Convos from the Couch by Life Stance Health. I'm Nicolette Lianza, and on this episode, I will be talking with Dr. Ariel Mintz, a Life Stance original medical director, and we'll be talking about mental health and the Jewish community. So welcome, Dr. Mintz. Great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So you can share more about the cultural values within the community and even how the trauma of things like anti-Semitism can affect the community as well. So thank you again for being on. Absolutely. And as we jump in, why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a child adolescent adult psychiatrist based out of the Cleveland area. As you mentioned, I serve as a life stance regional medical director for Ohio and Indiana. I have special interests in ADHD, anxiety, depression, and also I'm really interested in teaching about mental illness and advocating for a world that's more aware, respectful, and empathetic to people living with mental illness. Also importantly, I think the reason you're having me on this episode today, I am an Orthodox Jew and watching my own community struggle with the stigma surrounding mental illness led me several years ago to actually start a nonprofit, Refuda Nefesh, which translates to healing of the soul in order to address what was going on in the Jewish community to allow us to be more comfortable discussing mental illness and support each other through our struggles of mental illness. Oh my gosh, Dr. Mintz, that's amazing. Wow, that's great. That's great. What gave you the idea to uh, start that? I imagine we'll get into a little bit more of this later in this episode, but essentially where the idea came from, when I was in medical school in Detroit, when I had my psychiatry rotation, I noticed a very large percentage of the inpatient unit at that time happened to be Jewish and a large percentage Orthodox as well. And I was pretty shocked by this because growing up, I didn't know anyone that had mental illness. I thought that Jewish people didn't have mental illness because I had never seen it or heard people talk about it. And so once I saw how prevalent it was and how little we were talking about it, the wheel started turning in my head and I was trying to think, what can I do to change the reality? And the fact that you asked you, you asked yourself that and you actually took action to do that. So I commend you for that. That's amazing. Yeah. And it was nice. Once I started it, it was, it was quite remarkable how many people reached out to me and how big it became so quickly because other people quietly realized the same thing and wanted to get involved and help out. And so I was not the only one that participated in it. It was nice to see how many people wanted to do something, but hadn't taken the action yet. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you definitely inspired them to do so then, huh? I was one piece of the puzzle. So tell us a little bit about the important cultural values within the community. Sure. First, I'd like to preface this by saying that I am one Jew. As they say in many cultures, if you meet one Jew, you've met one Jew. And so my views and experiences don't necessarily mean the same for every other person um, that is Jewish. And so I'm going to share with you my own background, my own experiences, um, but they don't necessarily apply to everybody. But I'll share a few cultural values with you. So the first one I think I'd like to highlight is the idea of what's called Kiddush Hashem, which very loosely translates into making a positive impression. And so we are very much from early school and imbued with the idea that how we 
act is going to lead to how people perceive Jews in general. And so it's very important that we're always under our best behavior. We always give our best selves. And so I think to a large degree, this leads to the idea that people don't want to admit any struggles or failures in themselves because they don't want to be judged themselves as being inferior or to have other Jews seen in a negative light. And so again, when I was in medical school, I saw how many Jews were on the psychiatric unit and weren't getting help. Interestingly also, so about half of the people on the unit at the time that I was doing my rotation were Jewish. In the support groups, so almost none of the Jews spoke. So they had support groups on the unit, and it was all the people that weren't Jewish who were speaking. And when I inquired about it, they told me, we don't feel comfortable talking because we're going to make ourselves look bad. People are going to think negatively about Jews. Okay. And so they just weren't comfortable opening up. And so that's one important cultural value that I think does affect Jews within therapy, Jews within psychiatry. Gotcha. And it's something I think it's important for therapists, for psychiatrists to be aware of as well. There's also the idea of modesty, which could definitely affect treatment and might be something that treatment providers have noticed with their Jewish patients. So very much we avoid provocative dress, but also we go a little bit further and we try to only associate with people of the same gender. And so if there is a relationship a treatment relationship between a male and a female. So what you might notice is that the person isn't comfortable shaking hands, or maybe they'll ask for the door to be kept open to avoid any sense of immodesty. I remember when I was younger, I heard a story about a well-known rabbi who was dating what later became his future wife. But while they were dating, they weren't married yet. And they were on a subway late at night, and they noticed that they were the only two people on that subway and the rabbi got very nervous about the impropriety of it. And he actually, he jumped, he hit the emergency exit and he jumped off the subway. Obviously, it's an extreme example. And I don't think most people would go to those lengths. But the story is used to show how serious and how much you have to be aware mm -hmm. of having modesty, both in professional and personal relationships. And so I think that's something that a lot of Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, do hold very dearly. And I guess the third one I wanted to highlight is the idea of tikkun olam or trying to fix the world up, leaving it better when you leave the world than it was when you came to the world. And I think that has led Jewish people to contribute quite a bit to fighting mental illness philanthropically. It is a cause that Jews over the years have come to support more and more to try to make it better for the world in general to help us address the, the big, broader issues that we're facing. There's an idea within Talmudic literature that we don't need to finish the work. It's a big job, but we also can't give up on it in general. And this is not a Jewish story that I'm about to share, but on a story that I've heard several times and I think very impactful that we very much take to heart is the story of the boy who's on the beach and he sees a bunch of starfish washed up on the shore. And he notices that the tide is starting to change and these starfish are going to be stuck on the sand. And so he starts throwing them back in. And an old man seeing this walks up to the boy and says to him, what are you doing? And he says, the tide's going to go in and these starfish, if they don't get back in the water, they're going to die. And the old man says to the boy, but there's a hundred miles of beach here. You're not going to cover all of it. Like, why are you even trying? And the boy says, you're right. But for this individual starfish, I've made a difference. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's something that that's we're taught story. as Jews. If we could save one life, it's as if we saved yeah. the entire world. And so that is very important cultural value throughout Judaism. Love that story. And I love, thank you for sharing some of the cultural values, because I think for some 
mental health clinicians or prescribers who might not be Jewish and they are working with an individual who is, to be aware of these cultural values would be very important. Especially perhaps if you go to shake, if you are identified as female and you go to shake the hand of your client who is male, not to take it personal if he doesn't shake your hand. And probably more than likely, he's also going to explain maybe about the modesty of it as well. But it's good to know these. Yeah. And I think always when in doubt, just ask. And usually for all cultures, if you ask, you clear up the air and you have a better understanding and respect for each other. Definitely. Definitely. So I know you already started to talk a little bit about how the community might view mental health, but can you go in a little bit more detail, especially a stigma, potential stigma surrounding mental health in the community? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, mental health is a, is a very Jewish thing. From Freud to Aaron Beck, Jews have been very involved in psychotherapy with many people in between. However, despite that, especially in the United States over the last many decades, there's been a lot of stigma within the Jewish community in regards to mental illness and a real reluctance to get treatment. Again, this is why I started that nonprofit years ago to really try to address that. And, and since I started it seven years ago, the landscape has really changed and people are talking about it more. It comes up when we have our shared meals together and when we're in synagogue. It's something people talk about almost very openly these days, definitely about our children and more so about ourselves as well. People are coming, becoming more comfortable with the topic, less afraid of it, and more understanding of people that are struggling with it. To the point where now pretty much every large Jewish community, Cleveland included where I live, we have organizations that are dedicated to spreading information, teaching people about mental illness, facilitating referrals for people, um, improving access to treatment, whether that's uh, through monetary needs or just figuring out how to get them into the correct treatment that they need. We've really created infrastructure to help people address any mental health issues that they might be struggling with. And we're also at this point taking a more preemptive approach as opposed to waiting for mental illness to develop. We're looking quite a bit at how we can improve mental health. How can we improve overall mental well-being? And so it is not uncommon um, and it's becoming quite common as in many ways it is in the general community as well. But this is something that's being taught in early elementary school, even as early as, you know, kindergarten. They're talking about what mental illness is, different emotions, being in touch with them, what you could do if you are feeling something that seems a little bit off. We're normalizing it. We're helping other people specifically. How do you handle a friend maybe who's suicidal? We're putting a lot of money into education within the Jewish schools for that. We're also at this point pushing premarital counseling. A lot of mental illness does seem to come from dysfunctional households. So when two spouses are not getting along with each other, it's impacting them, it's impacting their children. And so there's a strong push like it has been in the Catholic world, they've been pushing this for a long time, but now in the Jewish community, we're pushing premarital counseling so we could try to avoid precipitating future mental illness. You know, five years ago, uh, my wife wrote an article on a, a website called H.com. It happens to be one of the, I think it might be the most popular Jewish website where they have, I don't know the numbers, millions of views per month um, by different people. And she wrote an article about someone that had approached her who two people that were dating each other and the woman disclosed that she had an anxiety disorder that she was being treated for. And very often in the Jewish community, this could be an area where people are afraid of that. They're afraid of the genetics. They don't want to pass that on. People don't often even disclose things like that because they're afraid it will ruin their chances of getting married. Uh, Okay. And the guy was very concerned about this. And 
he was considering breaking up with her. And when my wife spoke to them both about it, it happened to be through a family connection. She had explained that the struggles that she has gone through and that now she's doing well on medication, that's not something that could be replicated by someone who hasn't struggled with mental illness. And she's going to be a better spouse. She's going to be more resilient Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the fact that she has struggled already. And they ended up, he appreciated that advice and they ended up getting married. And she shared this article. It was the number one article on the website for a month. Yeah, it it made a big impact. And my wife got just tons and tons of emails by people expressing thanks for standing up for people that are struggling with illnesses and for expressing a view that maybe somebody felt, but didn't have the courage to share themselves. And I think that is more where we're going over time, where people are realizing that, that mental illness is not just a negative, but it does lead to a lot of resiliency and a lot of experiences that you've gone through that have made you a better, stronger person than you would have been without it. And I think that's helped quite a bit in terms of changing how the community views this. And this with many other initiatives has led to a major change in just a short time over the last seven Mm -hmm. years, I've noticed. Oh my gosh, yes, which is wonderful. So I know we're already touching on some of the barriers to receiving treatment. Is there additional barriers? Uh, Yeah, I think the biggest barrier is that we are still a very small community. Um, Even within other states, we're very interconnected. If I go somewhere um, to visit, I could very easily be set up with another family who keeps kosher, another family who keeps the Sabbath. We're all connected through WhatsApp groups and through Facebook. And then everyone hears each other's business. And so people still are afraid. I mentioned before, people are afraid of marriage stuff. A lot of people work within the community and they're afraid that they won't be able to get a job in the school if they have a mental illness people know about. Going back into Detroit when I was in medical school, so when I saw what was going on and how the the Jewish patients weren't talking, so I started working to form a, a support group just for the Jewish patients so they didn't have to worry about oh, how they'd be perceived by outside society. Wow. I thought so too. I thought it was great, a great yeah. solution. However, then the fear became, no, I can't talk to people who know me either because then they're oh. going to stigmatize me and then my oh. children won't get married and my yeah. husband's going to lose his job. Oh. And so that became a big problem too. So I think that is changing. We're becoming more open, but people still do worry quite a bit about the small community. And I think also going back to a little bit what we discussed before, this fear of being misunderstood. So a lot of times you'll find that Jewish individuals with mental illness only want to be seen by Jewish providers because they feel that only a Jewish provider could understand what they're going through with the unique cultural differences. And so that, for instance, a community like Cleveland, I was on the phone with someone earlier today who had scrupulosity, some religious OCD, and they only wanted to see a Jewish psychiatrist or an Orthodox Jewish psychiatrist because they felt only an Orthodox Jewish psychiatrist could help them. But in Cleveland, I'm the only outpatient Jewish Orthodox psychiatrist. Um, And I already had a connection to this family and so I couldn't see them. So people will not get treatment sometimes because they can't find someone who they feel will understand them. Got you. I can see where that predicament there then. Gosh. And so you're the, really the only one in the Cleveland area. Only outpatient. outpatient one. There are outpatient. some other inpatient ones. Um, okay. Only outpatient one. Wow. So that and this is a very large community too. So all the more so in some smaller communities. So is that stating to the call of more people of the Jewish faith to become psychiatrists, to become mental health clinicians for the community? Yeah, I think we need it. I think it would be fantastic. And I think more people in general are going into psychiatry for medical school. The numbers have been rising for the last decade, but also more Jews are going into psychiatry as well lately. There are some factors that are pushing people into psychiatry, and I think it will be helpful for the Jewish community as there are more options over time. 
So shifting gears just a bit, what do you think are the ongoing effects of traumatic experiences on the community, such as anti-Semitism? Yeah, unfortunately, anti-Semitism is quite common, even in the U.S., which we think of as a very friendly country. It's, you know, probably the, the most receptive country we as Jews have lived in throughout our history. But in the U.S., there's still a higher percentage of anti-Semitic attacks against Jews than any other minority. And so it's quite prevalent. Personally, two years ago, our 12-year-old babysitter getting off her school bus had a glass bottle thrown Ooh. at her, and she had anti-Semitic slurs yelled at her just because she's Jewish for no other reason. My own son this past year in school, he's in a public school, and a kid came up to him and took his yarmulke off and threw it in the dirt and told him, why would you wear that hair? You shouldn't be wearing that hair. And we're in Beachwood, which is a very Jewish area, but there's still anti-Semitism everywhere to the point where pretty much every synagogue now has armed guards standing outside, and it's the only way we could feel protected. And so there's definitely anti-Semitism. It has led to quite a bit of fear and anxiety. I think a lot of people think of how long will we be able to stay here? I think most Jews at this point don't feel like we're going to be in America forever because it seems to be ratcheting up, unfortunately. And so that definitely has led to quite a bit of of angst amongst the parents, amongst kids. It's one effect of anti-Semitism. Beyond that, I think we're still recovering from the Holocaust quite a bit. At this point, there's not even very many survivors left, but we are still dealing with the repercussions. And one of those is that there's a lot of pressure within the Jewish community to build large families and to succeed professionally, to make up for all the losses we suffered in the Holocaust. And this is the ultimate defeat of Hitler. If we could show that our numbers are rising, that we're in, we're we're doctors and lawyers and accountants and all the high fields, then Hitler loses. And that's the only way to do it. I read a lot of books on these topics. And one quote that kind of still sticks with me, they were interviewing the child of a Holocaust survivor. And I wrote the quote here. The, the mother was talking about her unmarried son. And she said, I didn't survive Auschwitz so that my own child would end the family line. She'd say, you have an obligation to me and to history. And so there's a tremendous pressure to get married young. The okay. tremendous pressure to have a large family. The I tremendous pe- pressure to okay. really do financially and otherwise because of since that That also creates a lot of okay. other anxiety disorders, maybe depression if you're not meeting those goals. Right. Right. I want to say even beyond that, so that's more of the the psychological realm. Interestingly, they've also found, even in the children of Holocaust survivors, or even the grandchildren, I happen to be a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor, two Holocaust survivors. So Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's actually from Cleveland, she studied what the effects are. And initially, she found that in Holocaust survivors, there's low levels of cortisol. And that's not surprising. We see that with PTSD survivors, that their body doesn't know how to react the same way as somebody who hasn't gone through this trauma. What she found that was really interesting is that also the children and the grandchildren also have low cortisol levels. Um, so this literally this intergenerational trauma. Exactly, mm-hmm. which I know you, you're, you're yep. quite familiar with. Yeah. And this has been found in all types of PTSD survivors. They've seen it now with 9-11 survivors and people, people that fought in the different wars, whether it's the Iraq-Afghanistan war, Vietnam, before that. They, they really see that there are long-term effects where there's these epigenetic changes where we are expressing our genes differently because of the fact that our parents and our grandparents went through such severe trauma. And this leads to a higher proportion of anxiety disorders, PTSD, mood disorders, dysfunctional relationships, and it's setting people up that already we are at a higher 
we are higher predisposition for mental illness because of experiences that our our parents and grandparents had. And so that still is weighing on us. But also from a more positive side, therapy has been shown that they could reverse these epigenetic changes. So not just changing how we think, not just changing the psychological factors, but actually could change the way our genes express themselves. And so that's really encouraging. And to a large degree, there's also been some research that hearing these stories, if you talk about your past, no matter how traumatic it's been, if you talk about even right now, some negative experience you're having, but the fact that we're still surviving and going on, that could lead to tremendous resiliency in the children and in each forthcoming generation. And I, I think Jews in general, we've been talking about our survival story for decades, not sorry, for centuries, for millennium. That, that is the Jewish story. We just came off a of Passover where that's the major thing. We, we were enslaved in Egypt and they tried to kill us and we survived and now we're growing as a nation. And that's something I've always heard as a child. I know one story I, I enjoy whenever I think of is in 1941, so in Lithuania, uh, the Jews were running away from Hitler and the Nazis. And there was a, an author who was capturing the scene and he wrote about this one woman who is dressed to the T's and she even has her high heels over her shoulder as she's running away. And he, he mocks her saying, what does she think? She's going to a ball? And this woman happened to be my bubby. It was my grandmother. Oh, and wow. this is a story that has been passed down. We all talk about it. And obviously she didn't think she was going to, to the ball. She knew she was running away. She was trying to save herself, save, she was pregnant at the time, trying to save her pregnancy. But she also believed that there was a tomorrow and that she could overcome this. And so I think the literature shows beyond the Holocaust that when you do talk about difficult situations and how you've overcome them, that does lead to better outcomes for your children. And definitely some negative aspects of how anti-Semitism and the Holocaust has affected us, but there's also some positive aspects as well. That makes me think of one of the resources I'll, resources I'll sometimes recommend for some of my clients is Viktor Frankl's In Search for Meeting. And for those who might not be familiar that, with that book, but Viktor Frankl himself was in a concentration camp. And I'm sure you're probably very familiar. I, I'm assuming you've read the book as well, Dr. Yes. Mitz, right? And you know, looking at it from a point of view, often when I'm recommending it for people, it's looking at it from a point of view of like post-traumatic growth. How do you make meaning even from suffering? And how, how did Victor Frankl make it through with still psychologically being able to make it through living in a concentration camp and still come out with the energy to write this book? from it and to inspire so many others from it, Jewish and non-Jewish from this. So I think that just really talks about the spirit of Jewish, the Jewish community for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a very influential book within the Jewish community. I think less well-known, as you said, outside of the Jewish community. So he created what we call logotherapy. And yep. it's really you never hear meeting. about it. And it doesn't get taught really in grad programs. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah. I was just pondering that the other day. Go ahead. Yes. I, I don't know why, because I think there are, you and I both often see patients that really have rough lots. There's not a lot that they have going for them. And especially with patients that are chronically suicidal, that have endured a lot of trauma, I, I, think, I think he was only able to come up with it because of the experiences he went through. But I think it provides tremendous meaning to people that maybe are really struggling and they're not living the ideal life. And yeah, like you said, it's something that I've been exposed to and something that I use in my therapy when I meet with patients and I find tremendously helpful. Any other 
takeaways you'd like to share? As we've gone through this conversation today, the Jewish community has really come a long way over over the last decade. We've made a lot of progress, just like the general community. We've really switched from a paradigm of being ashamed of mental illness, of not talking about it, to thinking about how can we further address it? How can we improve the situation? And instead of fixing mental illness, really improve mental health and overall being so that mental illness doesn't develop. I, I think we have a lot to learn from each other. The broader community, the Jewish community, there are some cultural differences, and I think, as we mentioned earlier, the more we talk, the more we could develop mutual respect, understanding, mm-hmm. and I think really work together. I think we could really together achieve the goals of life stance, really improve access, improve outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the for mental illness, I think we're living in a great time where I think we're close from a biological perspective to understanding it better, treating it better. Society is more accepting of it. We're finally getting closer to parity in insurance. People are not ashamed of it anymore, and it's really becoming something that could be a source of strength, and hopefully in the next several decades, hopefully we won't be viewing mental illness even as we are now. Hopefully right. it will be something that's treatable as we want to treat it, and we could continue to take the positive aspects from it. I agree. My gosh, this has been an amazing conversation, Dr. Mintz. I very much appreciate this, and I know there's going to be many listeners out there that, one, I hope if they weren't familiar with some of the cultural values within the community or even how mental health might be navigated, that we educated from that point of view, but also anyone out there who maybe just be appreciative that we're having this conversation because be, they themselves are Jewish. And I think that's so important as well. So thank you for this amazing conversation that we had. Thank you so much for having me on and for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for the work you do. I, I want to say that. It sounds like you do some really good work here within the community. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I imagine, I, I don't know, if people don't know, not only do you run a podcast, but you also are a therapist that's doing the good work as well. <laughs> oh my gosh. And as we spoke about before going on air, you're also teaching the next generation of therapists. So thank you as well for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We're both thanking one another for the work we do. So thank you for saying that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes. And on those lines, I also want to thank the team behind the podcast, Jason Clayton, Juliana Wooden, and Chris Kelman. Take care, everyone. 